Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast in my series on the New Testament letters. I've been learning so much as I prepared for this series, and I hope you'll find this topic not only informative, but also helpful when you want to study these letters. My primary sources for information on this topic have been a podcast and video series done by thebibleproject.org and also a website called thattheworldmayknow.com. Let's quickly review some of the key points from our first podcast before we get started. First, we discussed the fact that we need to remember that these letters are, well, in fact, letters. They're written correspondence, many times in response to a letter the author received that we no longer have, or in response to something that has happened in one of the new churches. It'll be helpful to remind ourselves as we read them that we're seeing one side of a two-sided conversation, and therefore, in order for us to have a clearer understanding of the meaning and the intent of the letters, we really should do a little extra investigative work. For example, have you ever listened to someone talking on the phone and tried to guess what the other person's saying just by what you're hearing? Well, yeah, sometimes that can get you in a little bit of trouble. So, same thing. We need to proceed with a little bit of caution. Next, we discovered many of these letters were written in partnership with more than just the assumed author, and the process to write these letters was not only long, but costly. So, wax tablets were used by authors for note-taking, which honestly could occur anytime, anywhere. They had a spare moment to write down an idea, or sometimes they would collaborate with their trusted companions. The final letters, though, were always written down by a hired professional due to the high cost of the materials. The author would want to really ensure that their precious letters would have excellent penmanship so that the letter could actually be read. I know many people whose handwriting is pretty cryptic. Remember, most people during this time couldn't read, so letters had to be read aloud, which means you had to be able to read the handwriting. Interestingly, Paul mentions his poor handwriting in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, See with what large letters I write with my own hand. Yeah, large handwriting wasn't desirable when you were literally paying per page. Handwriting may be a lost art, but even 2,000 years ago, it wasn't a skill that everybody had, and it actually wasn't held in great esteem for moving up the social ladder. That was all about your lineage, your wealth, your citizenship, your associations, and interestingly, the ability to speak well in public, but not by your writing. Handwriting was just shared by a small percentage of the population, and everybody else who could afford the expense to hire someone, that's what they would do. Writing in the ancient world, as we're learning, was really laborious and therefore performed by these highly trained slaves or servants. 
The production of manuscript, even as short as a personal letter, was not only a ridiculously long process, but kind of technical. So the scribe had to have special training, the skill to follow dictation, or maybe even to discuss with the author or the committee the ideas and the themes. They had to be able to decipher the author's shorthand on their wax tablets. And then they would have to transfer that information to a sheet of papyrus using a reed pen and carbon-based ink. And this is something I didn't think of, but the secretary or scribe would generally make two copies of the letter, one for the author and one for the recipient. Ah, life before the copy machine. We looked in our last podcast at examples in some of the letters of where we saw actual input by the secretary. One of my favorite examples of potential input is in one of Paul's letters. It's the letter to the Corinthians, and he actually kind of appears to be scolding them. And this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 14. Listen to what Paul writes. I give thanks that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you have been baptized in my name. Okay, but here's what's amusing, and it almost seems like this was the final copy, and Paul's been reminded by maybe the secretary or maybe by his friend Stephanus that what he just said might not be completely accurate. And so now it's almost like, oh yeah, I forgot. So listen to the rest of it. Again, it says, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I love that. We seem to be witnessing a glimpse of the actual process of composition. And Paul having misspoken during his dictation, it seems just how to scribe insert a correction, maybe above the line in small letters or along the margin rather than making them go back and rewrite the entire section. Now later, copies of these letters have inserted the addition into the body of the text. Like in my Bible, it's in parentheses. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So you've got a pretty good idea of the writing process. Today, we're going to talk about the historical context of when these letters were written and why that's so important to understanding the impact these letters would have had. What was happening in the world 2,000 years ago, and how does this shape the way the letters were received by their listeners? Well, think if someone found one of your letters 2,000 years from now that you had written last year. And in the letter you say you had to wear a mask and you weren't allowed to go to a wedding or a graduation. Now, that would raise some eyebrows, right? They would need to do some investigating to find out what the heck was going on in the world that caused you to behave that way. That's kind of the same kind of attention we really should apply in order to really appreciate the impact these letters had on their first century audience. We just need to walk back in time to find out 
what was going on and what made them think and act the way that they do. Okay, first, they were new believers. This was a new religion. Initially, the believers were converted Jews, but as the news spread, especially by Paul, people who had no faith or maybe who had previously had pagan faiths are now being introduced to Jesus. And take a step back. Not even all Jews were the same. And so not all Jews received the information of Jesus being the Messiah in the same way. In the first century, there were actually four, what I'll call, predominant sects of Judaism. And yeah, this shouldn't be surprising. I mean, not all Christians believe the same things or act the same way today either, right? But it's important for us to understand the religious environment in which these letters were written. Remember the 12 apostles? Yeah, they were all Jews, but they had some pretty different understandings. So the major Jewish divisions were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. It's important for us to know that they would not have all reacted the same way to these letters or to the news that Jesus was the Messiah. For example, the Pharisees. They were actually descendants from the Maccabee era. And if you listen to my podcast on Hanukkah, you'll learn more about the Maccabees. The Pharisees were composed of the middle class, typically middle-class merchants, and scholars believe there was probably about 6,000 of them in the first century. Paul, for example, he was a Pharisee. They were the strict keepers of the law. And they also saw the entire Old Testament, not just the first five books, the entire Old Testament as being valid and important. They believed there were 613 laws and that the study of the Torah was extremely important, and adherence to the law is exactly what God wanted from his people. Consequently, the Pharisees looked at Rome as a necessary evil, and they weren't really bothered by them as long as they were left to practice their beliefs. The Pharisees tend to be really legalistic, and they're the ones that have the problem with Jesus when he heals on the Sabbath for example. Now, the Sadducees, they're descendants from King Solomon's first high priest. Remember, it was King Solomon who built the first temple. So, the Sadducees, they're wealthy, they're aristocratic, and they're the temple priests. Unlike the Pharisees, remember I said they look at the whole Old Testament as God's law, the Sadducees, they only look at the first five books of the Old Testament. I used to say to my confirmation students as a way to remember this distinction, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the books of the prophets or in the bodily resurrection. Can you see how belief in a resurrected Jesus would have been a problem for them? Yeah. Remember, the Sadducees are the one who run the temple and they're responsible for all the ceremonies. And they're also the ones that make up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish religious ruling council. Interestingly, 
they receive Roman support. If you watch that excellent miniseries, The Chosen, this is really dramatically demonstrated. Think about who brought Jesus to trial. It was this group. Can you start to understand why these letters about the Jesus movement would have been threatening to their way of life? They were the keepers of the religious power and the preservers of the peace. They coexisted nicely with the Romans, and the Jesus movement was a threat. Next, we have the Jewish group called the Essenes. We think they may have actually kind of come into fashion during the time of the Maccabees also, just like the Pharisees did. Now, the Essenes most likely were originally Sadducees or Pharisees, but something happened and they became really kind of disenfranchised and preferred a life of isolation in the wilderness rather than participating in temple. The Essenes saw the temple priests as being corrupt. The Essenes felt they had been chosen to prepare for the arrival of the kingdom of God, and the way that they needed to do this was to strictly adhere to the Torah and avoid corruption, so therefore withdraw from society. Their primary purpose in life was to preserve the Old Testament writings. They were thought that they were to keep watch for the time of the Messiah because they were the chosen ones to work with him to usher in the new kingdom. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that mentions this group. We actually learn about their existence from Jewish historians like Josephus. They practiced celibacy, had strict dietary requirements, and actually kind of led a monk-like existence. Now, if you're familiar with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we believe they were collected by the Essenes. Now, imagine how they would interpret the news of Jesus. Would they take kindly to the idea that all were chosen and not just them? And we have the Zealots. Oh, yeah, the Zealots. These are the badass Jews. Their group was formed, get this, in reaction to a Roman census that was taken in 6 AD. They were Pharisee extremists, living mostly in Galilee, which is northern Israel. For example, the Zealots believe slavery is the ultimate evil, that only God can rule a man. Okay. Zealots believe taxes were only due to God. So they refused to pay him. Huh, a problem. Because in the Roman Empire, heavy taxes are waged against everyone. So the zealots hated the Roman rule, and the zealots were terrorists. And they performed many violent acts against the Romans. The zealots are the one who hope Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire, set up his earthly kingdom, and... Yeah, they're a little disappointed that he doesn't do that. So that's our basic Jewish audience. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. Now, we also have the rest of the world. Pagans, or just non-believers in general, well, they make up 90% of the known world at this time. Paganism is local, and it's kind of based on whatever beliefs are going on in your area. 
There were ancestor gods, Roman gods, city gods, gods that gave you holidays. There were magicians. There were sorcerers. So these people, they had never heard of the scripture, had no concept of a Messiah, and most likely were a little freaked out by this whole idea of resurrection from the dead. There was, for example, big business in selling amulets and idols, and the Jesus movement was a huge threat. Cities were known for specific gods and goddesses, and their pagan temples well, they were basically tourist attractions. Get your popcorn, get your cotton candy, get your Artemis statue. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, there's this really interesting story about a silversmith named Demetrius in Ephesus. Well, basically starts a riot because he gets really upset when Paul tells Demetrius that the little statues of the god Artemis that he's selling are not gods, because man-made gods are not gods at all. Spreading the news about Jesus is not an easy task. Hopefully you can see that most of the non-believers were also not jumping on the Jesus bandwagon, especially if it threatened their ability to make a profit. So that's the religious climate. Now let's take a look at the historical and the political climate. But before I do that, I just want us to take a step back and put things in perspective because this is very important for us to remember. These letters are inspired scripture. Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, they all knew the resurrected Jesus. Some like Peter and John, they were his closest disciples. James and Jude were his brothers. And Paul, the author of most of the letters, well, he had a pretty dramatic encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. These letter writers, they knew the ancient scriptures, most likely by heart. And so all of their letters fit into the larger storyline of scripture. It's no accident that they wrote these letters or that these letters are included in our New Testament. The letter authors knew the story of God creating humanity and that after the rebellion of man, that God decides to focus on one man, Abraham, one nation, Israel, to then be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus' 12 apostles and his new followers they really saw themselves as part of this continuing story of redemption. They knew, because Jesus specifically told them, that they had a mission to share the good news of salvation with the world. Their job was to announce salvation through Jesus the Messiah. So they saw themselves as playing a crucial role in this. That's really important to know when we're reading these letters. The authors got it. What I mean is they knew that what they were writing was really important and that they had to get it right, which is why they spent so much time taking notes and collaborating with others. What's also noteworthy, these letters were written really relatively soon after Jesus' ascension into heaven, 
not a lot of time has passed before they started to actually write these things down and share it with the early believers. These authors had firsthand knowledge. Most of the New Testament letters written by Paul were written between 50 and 62 AD. We need to know that their writing was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Next, these letters were written within the culture of the Roman Empire. Most people, Jew or Gentile, and remember, Gentile is everyone who's not a Jew, so 90%, lived in poverty. There's a clear hierarchy. Wealthy men moved ahead. All others were inferior with no rights. So what becomes so remarkable in our New Testament letters is that for followers of Jesus, all are to be equal. This is a huge deal. The letters of the New Testament proclaim that God gave the gift of love to all. Therefore, these letters proclaiming this equality broke down social, economic, and sexual barriers. The idea of equality was radical in the ancient Roman Empire. Think about it. Rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, all equal under God. Also, to be considered when reading each of these letters is what I'll call the situational issue. Each letter was written because of a specific situation. Okay, well, look at the letter to the Romans. This was written because strict adherence to the Jewish laws, probably by the Pharisees, started to divide the early church between the Jews and the non-Jews. The new followers of the Jesus movement started to treat each other with contempt. The Messianic Jews, so the Jewish followers of Jesus, felt that the non-Jews should not be able to follow Jesus without adhering first to the 613 Jewish laws, which includes circumcision, which is not a big selling point for adult males. This is a huge deal. Most people in Rome are not Jewish. Most people in the Roman Empire are not Jewish. The Jews felt that in order to be a Jesus follower, you first had to become a Jew. And of course, remember, not all Jews feel the same way either. Pharisees say there's 613 laws and you need to follow them to the T. So the whole letter to the Romans addresses these situational issues of Jew versus non-Jew and what you do or you don't have to do to be a follower of Jesus. The ideologies outlined in the first part of the letter are to unify the church in the second part of the letter. Paul's letter to the Romans outlines the fact that, look guys, salvation is available to everyone, regardless of your sin or your family tree. So Paul explains at length in the letter to the Romans that we're saved by grace, unearned 
undeserved favor from God through faith, complete trust in Christ, not through circumcision or eating or not eating certain foods or obeying or not obeying certain laws. Can you see why the letter to the Romans had to be as long as it is? The letter to the Romans is Paul's longest letter. And here's what's also interesting is that when he was writing this letter, he had actually never been to the Rome church at this point. In fact, none of the apostles had been there at the point that Paul was writing this letter. It's believed that the church or churches, and remember when I talk about church, it's not a physical building. It's a group of believers who typically met in a house. So the fact that none of the followers of Jesus have actually been to Rome yet, how did this church movement start? Many think it may have started at Pentecost, and people who were at Pentecost came back to Rome and started a church. So for these new believers in Rome, this is a crazy time because if you're not Jewish, you literally have nothing to base your faith on except other people's testimony because these new believers that are non-Jews, Gentiles, they don't have a Bible. They don't have any biblical knowledge. They don't know the Old Testament stories. It wasn't part of their family history. They don't have the Gospels because the Gospels haven't been written yet. Paul's letters were written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels. Mark's Gospel, which we think is probably the earliest one written, isn't written for about 20 years later, sometime between 66 and 70 AD. The letter to the Romans may likely have been the first piece of Christian literature that these Roman believers have ever seen. Think of how important this fact is when you read the letter to the Romans. Paul is desperately trying to explain to these new believers what to believe and why. And he's trying to undo their cultural and historical bias and present this brand new religion. What was the world like in the first century? Life was dictated by the fact that you were under Roman rule. The message of the letters is really a direct threat to Roman rule because the letters say all nations need to give their loyalty to God. But under Roman rule, the emperor is God. These letters contain political, economic, and social ramifications. Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. The Romans have inherited regional power from the ancient Greek Empire. And remember, the entire New Testament was actually written in Greek originally, and so were the letters. But the empire is now Rome. Caesar's face is on the coin. The Roman Empire's religion is the emperor. The emperor is considered Savior, Lord, and Master. During the first century, it's a period of time called Pax Romana, and it's a time of relative peace in the empire. Yeah, but the way that they establish peace is through conquest, subjugation, and intimidation. Nations have been invaded, nations have been enslaved, 
heavy taxes are imposed, disturb the peace, get crucified. Therefore, most people are not going to make waves. The government's small. Power is concentrated at the very top. Only 3% of the entire empire possesses the majority of the wealth. This is the world that these letters have been written in. Can you start to see how radical these teachings are? Can you start to understand why many of Jesus' followers are imprisoned and killed? The letters teach the first will be last. That's a dangerous idea. Jesus and his followers are making the claim that power is going to be redistributed. This is radical. Jesus and his followers are saying that the gift of being included into the family of the Messiah is regardless of power, regardless of rank, regardless of monetary situation. And what's radical to the Jews is that Jesus says, all can attain salvation, not just the Jews. These letters and this news, it's upsetting a whole lot of people. Finally, in order to understand these letters, we need to understand a little bit about Roman culture. The Roman culture was an honor and shame culture. Respect and honor came through wealth, education, your family, your political connections, and your ability to be a good public speaker. Esteem or respect was only received through group approval. Self-esteem did not exist. It was not a thing. Today's belief that if other people don't understand you, it doesn't matter. That's their problem. In the first century, the idea of a human having value outside of their group, radical. The idea that a human's value is not defined by their group or their family, radical. Jesus and his followers and these letters make this incredibly bold statement that being made in the image of God is what gives you ultimate value, not whether you're an elite or rich or powerful or a good public speaker. In ancient Rome, being admired is the goal. People would have a strong desire to move up the power-privilege scale. Not that they'd have any opportunity to do so if they weren't born into it. But these letters are stating that humans are glorious because they're divine image bearers, not because they have done anything or accomplished anything great. Yeah, that news would probably be a problem for someone like Caesar, right? The message in the letters was so completely different from what the world was saying. Interestingly, I feel that in some ways, little's changed in 2,000 years. The world still tells us our value is determined by power, prestige, popularity. Jesus' message still seems radical, doesn't it? In our final podcast on the letters, we're going to review the form that the letters take. It's pretty cool. And this will give us a better understanding of how to read and study the letters. In the meantime, take a look at one of the New Testament letters. How does the letter challenge you to be radically different than our 21st century world? Have a blessed day.